Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to advance in leadership, then this podcast is for you. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker, and Monique Marquez, senior corporate leader, ex-Googler, and diversity expert. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, this is Nikki Barua, your host for this episode. Life is not about being perfect. You're going to make mistakes, especially if you take risks. Our guest today is Ingrid Kiefer, who shares insights into her career success. She believes in taking risks early in your career where the potential failures will not be as impactful as further down the line. Ingrid has created her own opportunities and found success in being authentic and accountable. She shares numerous stories of how taking ownership creates the right outcomes for the business and also for your career. Grounded by her family, Ingrid tells us how important our personal lives are to success at work. She talks about how there is power in saying no, not only for your own boundaries, but for the person who needs to know if they can really count on you. Join us as we learn from Ingrid how to take risks, fail forward, and be ourselves at work. Visit imbeyondbearers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Ingrid. Hi, Ingrid. Welcome to the Beyond Bears podcast. We're so thrilled to have you here today. Thanks, Nikki. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Well, let's dive right in because I'm so eager to share your story with our audience. Uh, so let's start with uh, just a uh, you know overview of kind of what your formation story is. Sure. So um, it's interesting. I never thought I was going to get into finance, to be honest. Mm. Um, I graduated from school. I uh, went to Europe for a bit. I came back and my parents were both in academics, um, liberal arts backgrounds, classicists. My father's a marine biologist. Um, I thought I'd been to actually go into being an English professor, um, you know, loved English, loved writing. Um, and then I realized that I needed to make some money. So I saw, and this is what got me into finance, that I had a degree from a good university that would allow me to get into a finance field, despite the fact that I had a liberal arts background. Mm. And I was like, well, you know what, if I hate it in two years, it's fine. And I can still go back and get a PhD. Um, but if I don't do that, I, that option will have expired. Right. So mm. two years, see if I like it. And if I like it, then I've got, I can take a look at two different roads versus like really committing to a road so early after graduating and being relatively young. So that's what got my into finance. I ended up loving it. I actually went to the buy side, not the sell side immediately. I worked at a place called Fisher Francis Trees and Watts, uh, which was a really interesting firm um, focused on central bank reserve management. I know that sounds really boring, but it actually was kind of exciting to work with like, this is before the euro, right? So you had the Australian Austrian National Bank. You had the Danish National Bank. We worked with the Bundesbank of Germany. Um, so that just felt kind of like really amazing mm. to kind of work with these huge, large institutions in terms of their currency reserves. Um, anyway, cut to about five years, I kind of went up through the ranks there and ended up kind of managing our, our client group, working for one of the partners. Um, and then I thought I should go to a bigger firm. Um, that firm was about, you know, 200 people went to ended up going to BlackRock, uh, worked with Barbara Novick at BlackRock and the U.S. institutional mm. group. Really liked it. There were only 400 billion at the time, just to show you how old I am. Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, but it was really big. And I think one of the things I learned from BlackRock, uh, which is a fantastic institution, but is that they have a, they have a specific style for managing assets that is really about scale and wasn't necessarily mm-hmm. about a bespoke or more boutique investment approach tailored to different clients, which when you're mm-hmm. in the world that I was in is where your product knowledge and your technical expertise gets to get married with the client dialogue. And so mm. that's what made me realize, like, I kind of want to go to smaller places. And at that point, hedge funds, so this is in kind of the mid 2000s, were really starting to create quite a, uh, a buzz. And mm-hmm. I got attracted to a place called Drake um, and worked there for several years. And that's where I had my big success. And that's probably where I had my light bulb moment, which is because I'd been at bigger firms with very established client bases. And then I went to a very entrepreneurial place that was a mm. fraction of the size. Um, there was this moment where I was like, they, you know, I realized that if I don't raise the money, it isn't here. There's no one else, right? Mm. There's no safety net of some large, some business card or some business. Like it's on me to go out and make it happen. And that was terrifying. But I think that was the impetus. And that's where I had my greatest jump and my biggest success. And, um, mm. and that's what launched me then into the more of the blue chip kind of hedge fund alternative fields. Um, and I left them right before the financial crisis um, and ended up kind of making my way while pregnant, <laughs> I might add, into Canyon Partners, which is where I am now. So I joined Canyon in 2009. Uh-huh. Uh, and I've been there ever since. And um, uh-huh. that this has been the perfect place. Um, really interesting people, fantastic caliber of investment process and investment expertise, um, but small and uh, able to have really interesting conversations with clients and actually create something for them. Um, And what we actually invest in has a lot of stories, right? Mm. There is not a macro where you're kind of just taking a look at FX rates or where the interest rate curve is or the forward curve is and where something's straight. This is about going into highly complex or distressed assets and untangling the liabilities and the assets and the management team and the triangulation to kind of how that's being priced in the market and figuring out if there's value there. And it's usually a story on why we think that the value is at a place that the market thinks it's not. And um, and so it, there's a little bit of a trust me exercise that we have it right, but it, at this right. point we've been around for 35 years. And so it's been a great place to land. Anyway, that's, yeah. that's it. Well, you know, what I find fascinating about like this entire through line of your career and journey is, um, you know, two things stand out. One is for people listening to this are going to, you know, be, uh, it, it, it's sort of, um, it's fascinating to think an English major kind of found their way into a, uh, a very technical industry, if you will, like finance, and and that to, you know, uh, not only thriving but really building an extraordinary career at all of uh, the best firms there. So it shows that you know when you find something that you're passionate about or something that fits right, it doesn't matter where you began and you created that opportunity for yourself. But the other part that is also interesting in all of the choices you made is you kept aligning it with what was right for you. So if you felt like a smaller, more entrepreneurial firm was a better match, like you didn't hesitate, you didn't follow a narrative, you chose what was right for you. 
Yeah, I think I think for me, it's um, I think the entrepreneurial bent because I that, that success that I've had at Drake was so inspiring to have that mm-hmm. kind of an impact and to mm-hmm. really directly correlate my efforts to EBITDA, right? It just and say that yeah. that was what I've done and that's how I've moved the firm forward. That's a much harder thing to get done at a large institution. And it's right. not because there's anything bad about that, but I think for me personally, I I like that level of visibility and ownership and accountability. Um, mm. And it's it's hard. There's a, a you know I think there's a benchmark. I get benchmarked probably almost daily in terms of mm-hmm. winning, losing, competing. Um, because in sales, which is I'm the head of yeah. business development. Um, you know if you're raising money or if you're losing money or mm-hmm. if your story's resonating, if your story's not resonating. And um, yeah. so that keeps you very accountable um, but high, and highly focused on kind of, you know, what the objectives are right. for the film. Now, I, uh, I'm curious about, you know, if you go back to the early days of your career and here you were starting in a whole new industry and, and all of that, um, how did you kind of, find your voice or, or confidence? I mean, what were the specific things that, uh, you know, if you're not coming from, you know, with an MBA in finance or something like that, and you're entering this new field, um, what was that like for you to kind of figure out what are the building blocks that helped you um, find your own voice? So that's, that's an interesting Item. So I would say I was slower to understand where I fit mm. because I hadn't really planned for it in my mm. career. Right. So I kind of was like, oh, this is a lark. Let's see what it's like. And I kind of like the people. And there was, um, again, I worked, the really big thing was I'm working with such smart, motivated people. And, um, and they're, they're incredibly intelligent, thoughtful, lovely people in this industry. That's not what they're known for, but there are a lot of them you know, in this area. And I, and I have a lot of friends that I've, you know, had and, and developed and nurtured over the last, like, you know, 20 years or so in the industry. Um, so that, that's one. I think just working with smart people and, and the meritocracy of the industry. Mm. And I know I'm not getting to kind of like what it was where I found my voice, but um, that's one of the things that I really felt versus some other industries where potentially there can be more political elements Mm-hmm. track that in America, it's very much, and again, going back to my first statement, what have you produced and can you show how you produced it in a way that was, you know, accretive to your institution? Yes, you should move forward. And it was, it was, you know, as black and white as those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and hard work, I felt correlated to that output. And so I was like, well, I know I can work hard and mm-hmm. I know I like, I can learn it. Um, but I probably was slower to ramp than some mm. of my peers who knew they wanted to do this right there, right then. Um, and the other thing that, you know, again, when we were kind of going through some of the, some of the discussions earlier in our conversation, one of the things is finding your moment to be authentic and to show who you are is, is really important. I also think, like, can I be who I am at this institution? Yeah. Um, and I remember, I remember this kind of ridiculous story, but I was at BlackRock at the time and I was, um, I think like the only woman that would go into this huge, um, kind of investment process. It was basically their investment committee or research mm-hmm. project. And I was there 
effectively to take notes and mm-hmm. to inform the sales staff about what had been discussed and if there was a shift in strategy or outlook that we would then relate to the global sales staff so that they, we were consistent in our, in our views and what we were communicating. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, it, we were in a brand new building. I walked in before everybody, because I would get there before everybody, because I didn't want to walk in with all these like, man, I was pretty young. I was a little intimidated. And I walked in, I was holding a coffee from Starbucks that I got in that morning and the door swung back, popped the coffee um, top off and then out of my hand. And I spilled coffee like all over the brand new rug of like the big room, right? The, that everyone came in that we had whenever our important, most important clients came in. This is where Larry Fink would sit. Like this was a big deal. And anyway, I won't name names, but as people were coming in, and these are the partners and the most senior staff. They're like, this is no good. Some, our CEO is going to have a really big problem with this. And he did. And he got really mad. And he thought someone at one of the senior guys had done it. And he was upset that they were showing so little disregard to our new furnishings. And kind of wouldn't let it go. Got pretty focused that this wasn't okay. And um, I finally, everyone was like looking around like, who did it? Who did it? And finally, I was like, I can't. And I was like, Larry, I did it. I'm really sorry. It popped out of my hand. And there's nothing I can do. And the deputy CIO, my name is Scott, said, well, that was brave. That was really stupid. But that was very brave. (laughs) (laughs) But I will say, after that, my equity with everybody for having done that went up. And I had a whole different set of relationships out of it. And I was yeah. so much more as like, you know, I'm not a peer, but as someone that they would maybe want to invest in. And yeah. it was a moment of total terror. <laughs> yeah. But it was also like, I can't, you know, I can't let someone else take this, take the blame and this yeah. is not who it can be. So anyways, it's a long winded story, but it was one of those moments that I always think back to as yeah. another jump for me. Where I was like, it's right. okay to be a little disruptive and, and be true to yourself um, in a right. way that maybe might not be positive, but then you can kind of breathe and, and people see who you are. And that actually accelerates where you go. Right. And, and it's such a powerful example of uh, taking you know a situation like coffee spilling, but it became an example of uh, your character you know, showing in terms of taking full accountability. If you do it then in the scariest of moments in front of the executives of this firm, you know, it shows what you're made of, but it also, their reaction to it would have also told you what they're made of. And if there wasn't a fit, it's also a good indication of where you belong. And I think it illustrates perfectly um, how every single opportunity can actually be an accelerant in some ways, you know, if you show up fully. Right. What if you could pinpoint the invisible ceilings limiting your success? Imagine having clarity on your strengths and barriers so you can take action and gain unstoppable momentum to advance as a future-ready leader. Well, that's exactly what the Beyond Barriers quiz will help you discover. You'll get your personalized score based on the 25 essential elements proven to accelerate success in the digital age, so you can understand what's holding you back and where to focus your efforts. 
The Beyond Barriers quiz is completely free and takes just a few minutes. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com slash quiz and take the quiz today. So uh, you're, you know, uh, as you're sharing the story, uh, you also highlighted how few women are in the industry. Um, you know, it's uh, notoriously, you know, male dominated. And, uh, you know, for leaders like yourself that have made it to the top, you know, there's uh, a lot of wisdom to share for someone who's either exploring this industry or at the early stages of building their career in, the, in this industry. What do you say to um, a young woman who's at, you know, the start of her career, uh, one about why it's worth, you know, considering this industry and, and second, you know, what is the one thing to keep in mind? So I will answer that, but before I answer it, I want to preface that, that I will give this advice with as much humility as I can, because I think that, um, I still make mistakes every day, um, on this. And I also think where women are now, and where the industry now is different, I think, and I don't think the industry is caught up as fast as where the women are in their expectations. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the fault of the industry. Um, but I think there, we certainly are in a much different place than when I started my career. Mm-hmm. And I could cite all sorts of horrendous examples of, you know, unconscious bias, et cetera, that happen, And, and mm-hmm. they still happen. And I don't, I don't think they happen necessarily out of a malice. It is, uh, it's a little, um, and I, I hesitate to the word, but, you know, again, how men grew up at 40, 50 years ago and where mm-hmm. we're growing up today and that consciousness, yeah. there's still a, there's still a space. There's still a gap mm-hmm. in between. Yeah. And I think, um, so, but I do think that you have to approach it with a conversation and empathy, even on the other side with with the, if it's a man or if it's someone in, in a position of power, mm-hmm. it's a conversation. And, it, and I, most of the time, I think none of this comes from malice. I don't, mm-hmm. I think it comes from habit. It comes from experience. It comes from what they saw in their families, which is talking mm-hmm. about you know, grandparents. Right. And mm-hmm. um, I find that if you can have a conversation with someone that is thoughtful, empathetic, understanding their context, because their experience is not your experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to create that shared experience. So they're like, oh, I get it. Um, mm-hmm. They have so much more time than it, time for you and they respect the way you're going to approach it. And that's a problem solving discussion. Mm-hmm. And it shows them that you're solving a problem and not creating one necessarily mm-hmm. that, can be, that can be easily avoided, right? One of the big things about being successful here is picking your spots, right? And mm-hmm is finding the time that you really do need to make a stand. And, and again, the more that you can work with the people, as long as you trust them, you respect them, and you feel that that is deserved, the better you'll do. And I, I will say, I think when I think about it, to some of my personal failures, most of them came from my own insecurity and my lack of trust to people. Mm. And if I can revisit those situations and take a breath, that I was always playing with the best actors, like in my entire 25 mm-hmm. year career, but I'm better than bringing it down to that level. Right. Like right. you can move on. Um, and you don't need to win the little fights, right? Yeah. It's all you, show. Don't tell. 
just keep on doing your job, keep on yeah. doing really well. And there's nothing that, that can, it's a merit. Hopefully you're in a, in a career and you're in a corporate environment that is meritocratic. And mm-hmm. if you can trust that, then you just need to kind of put your head down and keep on moving forward. And that's certainly true for this industry, right? Like it's yeah. very much about, you know, the results, it's extremely results driven. So you're not mired in the politics. Ultimately, if you have the results to show for it, the success will come in that. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting. Um, there was a, there was a, um, someone I worked with once said that your behavior, your bad behavior, the tolerance for your behavior is directly correlated, um, to your revenue impact, right? So mm-hmm. it, the more, the more, like the higher the revenue, the more higher the tolerance there is for bad behavior. I actually think that has come down a lot. I think mm-hmm. there is a place where that shift, and I'm not talking about like criminal behavior or exploitive behavior mm-hmm. or anything like that, uh, but I'm just talking about, you know, tantrums, right? Or, you know, mm-hmm. imperious behavior within the workplace and, and not yeah. treating people the way you would want to be treated. That I feel like a lot of that has has gotten so much more muted in over yeah. the last ten years since I've worked here. I mean, not, not at Canyon. I'm just in the industry in general. I just see it right. with my peers, and I hear from it from other people. But it doesn't yeah. exist. But it's much better than where it was. Yeah, and and that's why it's actually a, a terrific opportunity uh, for women that are interested in this industry to like build their careers because uh, it really is at the intersection of you know uh, big picture thinking and power and capital and really making shifts in the world, uh, you know, through the work that is being done at the firm. So you know, a lot of the work um, uh, is about risk taking. And big decision making. The nature of the work in this industry is a lot of, you know, um, placing thoughtful bets, if you will. And risk uh, management and risk taking is so much a part of what the the field is about. Um, Yet oftentimes, you know, when it comes to your own career, you know, uh, women in particular tend to uh, struggle with decision making or taking the risk that will propel them forward. How have you navigated through that? And what have you learned in terms of actionable advice for someone who's um, stuck and unable to decide between which path to take? You know, it, it's almost something that can come from like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like therapy. It's what, but but what, what I would say is you can't look at what, what you need to do as your end product. And every large effort, every large initiative is literally a series of just hundreds of tasks, of small tasks. And to the extent that it's an overwhelming feeling and you don't want to take that risk, the best way I know how is to deconstruct this project or this risk into what are the tasks that would be needed to affect this. And what you find is that a lot of them are, you write them down. It's a, it's a micro approach. You write down what are the tasks that I need to do to, let's say, I'll, I'll give an example from like, I, I need to hire five new sales teams. What do I need to do to do that? And that feels like a lot, especially in an incredibly um, intense talent pool regime that we've had over the last, say, mm-hmm. nine to 12 months. Um, and it's something as simple as like, well, I need to call five people that I trust to get their views on the placement agents that I might be using. 
And so now all of us, and then I need to call those placement agents and set up meetings and I need to. And it, it, once you start breaking down exactly what it is, you can create all these small wins, right? And mm. you can create these little check boxes. And then every day I can be like, okay, I did this to get us closer. I did this to get us closer. And what you realize is you've then built up, a, a, I think you've accomplished two things. I think you've built up more confidence about taking mm. it on because you can see it through a very narrow lens um, and you'll have achieved some, you'll know, no matter what, even mm-hmm. if you've done hundred percent, you've done 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you've built up the equity in the project that you're trying to achieve. And number two, you've, you've created this series of wins that you've done, that you're accountable for, that you own. And that will naturally give you this positive feedback loop of, if I can do this, I can do the next five. And then I can mm-hmm. do the next five. And maybe I can do 10 and I can make them bigger. But I think there's always this, um, I'm a big thinker. This person's a big thinker. They make these large decisions. None of these large decisions are made without making a bunch of little, just achieving, just uh, accomplishing mm. a bunch of little tasks, right? And make those decisions and move it forward. And, and don't think about what this means one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's something we try to do here at Canyons. We try to create um, the ability, or we're trying to get better at not being worried about failure, but about mm. supporting risk-taking that's positive. You're just right. not going to have a 100% success rate in your mm-hmm. job. It's impossible. Personal, it's impossible. Personally, it's impossible. Professionally. So yeah. what are, what's the resilience what's going to keep you coming back to keep on taking risks is also mm-hmm. like another item that's really important. Right. So make a big problem smaller yep. and then start taking action. So you start to see the momentum and that, you know, which is better than being stuck in one place, overwhelmed and with inertia, right? So you right. keep moving forward and you'll find the path forward and that, and that also helps to build your confidence as you go along. Exactly. So, um, and then, you know, like you said, not all things work out as you hope, despite your best intentions. Um, how have you dealt with failure? Um, you know, and, you know, how do you ensure that you're learning from that experience and, and what has worked for you that someone else could apply? Yeah, I think, you know, I would say I, I, I have a failure almost every day. <laughs> it's usually I even get it's not my yeah. personal life or you know blah blah blah. There's something I'm like, oh, I forgot to do that to get that done. So, um, it, you know, it's big and small. I think there's three there's three types of failures, right? Um, or you know, in terms of not meeting a goal or or not doing what you said you'd do. And one is like, is it something that you? It was was it was that failure a result of a misguided effort? So did you mm. get the problem wrong, right? And then mm-hmm. number two, was it a result of lack of effort, right? Mm. Did it just not work hard enough? Or mm-hmm. was it kind of a deus ex machina? Was it an exogenous event that mm-hmm. there was nothing you could do about? And then depending on what lane it fits in, then you need to construct the problem. If it's an exogenous event, brush it off, keep on going because those will continue to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we didn't raise a lot of money in 2020. COVID hit. Not going to blame myself, right? You know, like you're going to keep on. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, the lack of effort is probably the one that's the most painful. 
I think, because mm-hmm. you're like, if I had only done this, or maybe I thought it would be easier, so I didn't need to do that. And that's that's a tough one, but it's one you have to take on with honesty mm-hmm. and say, okay, you know what? I've been slacking off. I got to reapply myself. And what do I need to do? And why did I slack off on that? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And then the final one, was it a misguided effort? And that is where taking a look at it and you can take real lessons. Okay, what did I misread about that situation? Mm. Um, and that's one that actually will build up and create experience that will make you a more valuable part of your industry mm-hmm. or of, of your firm. Because you're going to be able yeah. to go, remember when that happened? This is what I want to do here. And you're going to yeah. that's what starts creating your, your portfolio of successes is being able to read back to prior failures. Oh, this is a fantastic framework. I never heard it described this way, but it shows you that in every situation there's something to learn and something to grow from, even including if it is an external event that you have no control uh, of, but it still teaches you resiliency to deal with things you have zero control over and still keep moving forward with enthusiasm. So that's a powerful way to look at how failure can give you feedback on exactly where to improve. Right, Um, yeah. Um, you know, let's uh, uh, talk about how you stay grounded. I mean, you're in an environment where uh, this constant stimulus, right? Lots of big things happening, uh, lots that you're responsible for. Um, what has helped you, you know, balance your personal, um, you know, life and your family and all of that? Um, so I have three children. I'm married. I have three children. I've come from a big family, big German family. (laughs) So I think, and everyone would say this, and I don't want to be too trite about it, but I I do think ultimately your children are the most grounding thing that could possibly happen to you. Mm. Um, And I have three um, at various ages. And if there's anything that's going to ground you and take the, take the air out of your balloon, it's a, it's a teenage girl. So that's, (laughs) Very helpful. <laughs> you want a really harsh mirror on what you're doing right or wrong? She'll give it to you. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, look, and I, I think this is, it's funny. Um, again, I'm again, speaking my age here, but uh, children can give you a great lesson because you were, this is something we say um, with, the, with my good friends, which is fail early, fail small, mm-hmm. right? fail late, fail big. And so it's this idea of like, how much rope do you, or how much do you let your child fail? And if you're kind of like alpha and you're kind of like performance oriented and when your kid is like three or four or five or six, you're just, you're there to make sure they do everything right. And in some respects, and this is something I've learned as my children have gotten older, the impact and the consequences of failure are longer lasting and more frightening, right? Mm. And and that has been a big lesson on how to spend my time. It's mm. been a lesson on when to invest, when to pull back, when to re-engage, um, how to get comfortable with failure, with their failure not being like, they're not going to be perfect. Like, And again, as they get to a certain age, your lack of control right? And that mm-hmm. is something is really difficult. Um, I think for high performance people that are in a job or have a certain amount of um, ex- you know, authority at a firm is that they have, a, they feel like they have a lot of control. 
and mm-hmm. your family teaches you that you really have none, right? <laughs> Ultimately, like, and I think that is, again, I go back to this feedback loop. That is a very healthy thing. And I think it actually, the family has helped me become a little less stressed about mm. this because it gives you that perspective. Like ultimately, yeah. do you think you're going to have a completely controllable existence? Absolutely not. And so how do yeah. you keep with the control and when, and, and when do you try to go in and fix something and when yeah. do you let it, you know, let it happen on its own. And, you know, so I, I think that's been a huge learning curve for me for the next, like the last two to three years, especially with COVID and what that, t- mm-hmm. and all, of that all that impact with the children. That to me probably has had the most profound impact on mm-hmm. my understanding and my ability to engage with people here and keep myself grounded on what my role is kind of in both places, right? As it, you just right. Know, as a woman, it, you know, who's trying to balance both sides of that, of her life. Right. But it also shows that, uh, you know, you can have a career and a family and, uh, you know, find perspective in both and how they really, you know, empower and support both sides. Uh, with Absolutely. The right yeah, that's the most important aspect. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up, Nikki, which is like the most important thing is if you don't have a healthy home life, it is mm-hmm. unlikely that you will have a sustainable and healthy career. That is, yes. And it doesn't mean marriage, doesn't mean this, but you need to have a counterbalance to mm. your, 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 your professional yeah. experience because they feed each other. Um, you won't get the lessons you need just in the office. You need to get right. the lessons in your personal yeah. life. Yeah. And you realize that we're all interconnected. You know, it takes a village to make, just as it takes a team in the workplace, you know, it takes a community at home as well. Um, And when they're interconnected, they're more fulfilling. It's not just about achievement, but it leads to more fulfilling existence. Um, Speaking of community, uh, you are pro at business development. And so much of that is about relationship building. Um, What uh, had, if there's one thing that you found to sort of building powerful professional relationships that have helped you achieve business goals, career goals, what would that be? Is there a habit? Is there a daily action or just a mindset? Um, I think I, I think everything in a business of relationships is incremental. I don't think there mm-hmm. is some grand sweeping. So there's a, there's an item we've, we've been doing some leadership training and one of the biggest mantras I've taken, two things that I've really taken from that though is make small promises and keep them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's about, if you say you're going to do it, just do that little thing. It's the little things that can really resonate. And as you build that um, mm-hmm. internally and externally, um, that that helps those relationships, I think, the most, right? Yeah. Being a consistent source of support, um, being authentic, right? No one mm. wants to feel like, you know, in the sales world, you just, they want to be able to talk to a person that they feel like they can trust. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to do your work. You've got to know your product. You've got to have conviction. Um, but you have to be, an, you have to be authentic to the person on the other side of the desk mm-hmm. at all points because, that is what allows to have a personal investment, them to have a personal investment in you. Mm. And, and even if the business doesn't get done, they will circle back to you at a different point in time because they feel like mm. 
there's something there that exists outside of the transaction. And that's what's the most yeah. important thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the themes that are coming through loud and clear through everything you've shared is authenticity and accountability. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it's like be authentic until take total accountability for the results that you want. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, when you take ownership, then you can create, you know, the right uh, outcomes that uh, you're seeking. Yeah. Exactly. I, and, and I think also um, a very good friend of mine that I worked with for years and years, um, fantastic guy in the, in the space, um, once told me, like, my second favorite answer is no. And he's like, because I can move on, right? If it's yes, fabulous. We are going to work together. But it's okay to say no and for us to continue mm-hmm. to have a relationship that's outside this transaction. But yeah. let me spend my time in the right place, right? Yeah. Let me use this in a way. The worst answer is maybe because you're kind of like, mm-hmm. am I doing, yeah. this? Are we doing this? What are we doing? Right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, he, was, he was a phenomenal guy. And I, I just I always remember that phrase. Um, yeah. that, that's great advice for anyone there. All right. So let's uh, do the lightning round questions. Sure. Uh, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, five questions and look for your responses that will help our audience get to know you even better. Uh, so the first one, what book has greatly influenced you? So I'm going to not give you one quick answer. Well, I'm going to give you a quick answer because it's lightning. First of all, I believe in heroes, so I like fiction. So mm. I actually am not a self-help book. I'm not a business book person. I think you want to find a book that inspires. So, mm. um, and that inspiration and that ability to take you out of some quotidian, you know, tasks and to reset where we are in the world is the best thing that you can do for yourself when you come back in to the workplace. Um, so my, one of my favorite authors is Martin Amos. Um, the one that mm. he, his most recent book is called Inside Story. It's phenomenal. His later series have really been um, very much focused on mortality. Um, he's mm. one of the most literate, literate kind of educated writers out there. He's just one of my favorites. He's incredibly funny and dark, but also very moving. So that's my book. And that's I would say go fiction. Yeah. What is your favorite inspiring quote? That's easy. So this is the one that's always changing, which is there's more harm done in indecision than the wrong decision. Oh, it's just love that. move forward and you can always correct a mistake, but it's better to keep moving. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. Uh, what is one word or a moniker that you would use to describe yourself? Um, so the word that I, I like to go with authentic. I like to go yeah. with um, what you see is what you get, you mm. know, and that, you know, hopefully there's no hidden pools of agenda yeah. when we're in our room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can attest to that. So, um, what is a, uh, one change or habit or behavior that you implemented that made your life better? Um, I think it's setting aside time to handle the, the business of being a family. And mm. not subjugating it, but saying, okay, I got to take an hour a day to make sure that we, you know, have we done with this with the kids' schools? We have these activities that we plan this vacation and just being like, I got to take that hour every day. So at least it's a dedicated, um, focused sense of mm. my time, um, even when I'm in the office. 
What power song would you want playing as you walk out on stage? <laughs> uh, so I thought about this. Um, I'm a hair band. So <laughs> I, like, I like hair band. I was thinking Welcome to the Jungle by Gina. Ah, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is on brand, Ingrid. That's yeah. on brand. <laughs> Get the hair yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was absolutely delightful. And uh, there was uh, so much actionable advice and wisdom in everything you shared. And uh, it uh, really gives perspective into understanding how you made it to the top and how someone else who's dreaming of the same can do it as well. So thank you for being on our show. And thank you for uh, inspiring women worldwide. Well, Thank you, Nikki. I can't tell you how um, honored, flattered, and surprised I am to have been invited onto this podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. I think the work that Beyond Barriers is doing is phenomenal. We've had such success with it at Canyon. We're excited about you know our next kind of docket of new leaders that we're trying to develop here with your yeah. help and support. Um, and I think our partnership has been one of the best things that we've done at this firm. So thank you again for the time today. Likewise, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Beyond Barriers podcast. There are thousands of podcasts out there, and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes, links, and the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.